morning, Ben. Grab a seat. Come on in. Enjoy the coffee. We're going to walk through the two-minute drill. Um, next slide. I don't have a clicker. All right. First question, state flags. How many U.S. state flags do not contain all contain the color blue? Got your answer locked in. Next slide. Which? Hmm? California is still part of the United States. All right. Question number two: Which of the following is false about internet domain names? They are base insensitive. B. They are limited to 128 characters. Internet domain names. They may only contain numbers, letters, and hyphens. Or the first commercial domain name was registered in 1985. And there's a handy example of a domain name. All right, next slide. One of those answers was false. Um, we've got a special request for some assistance this Saturday. Who knows what's going on Saturday? The Go-Go's are doing a yard sale. And Dave McKernan, where are you, Dave? Dave is doing helping to sit up for that, and he's helping the parking, and he needs some guys to help sit up. So if a table would like to throw three to five guys at this, there would be table points involved. But, Dave, you said 7 a.m.? One table at 7, one at um, 11, and a couple guys to help parking in the between time. And the uh, first two to see Dave, they'll get you signed up. There is a sign-up genius, but unfortunately, the sit-up and tear-down is not really covered on that that very well. But if you want to help in other ways, they do have some other means on the sign-up genius, which is linked to the um, local activities, Go Local, on the website. All right. Pray for Richard. Heavenly Father, as Richard comes up here this morning, I ask your blessing on him. It's preparation time. I ask you to, um, your spirit to move amongst the guys here, illuminate scripture for us, let us take what he says and move forward with him. In Jesus' name, amen. You got me? Okay, good. Thank you very much. The sincerity was overwhelming, whoever continued clapping out there. Yeah, we appreciate it. Okay, so talking about Luke. Actually, we're talking about what Luke talked about, which is Christ. So next slide, please. There we go. So this is a, 
passage that when we look at the commentary that, that uh, Jack found for us, which is an excellent commentary on Luke, I really sort of took a different direction than the Michael Wilcox, the guy who wrote the commentary. And I'll get to that really in a minute. So to me, this passage is about the centrality of Christ. For as Jonah became a sign to the men of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be, a, be to this generation. The Queen of the South will arise at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will arise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at, at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. I had an interesting example of this in, with a friend in Nepal. Um, we visited there. Uh, he's a worldwide missionary and invited me along for one of his visits to Nepal. Uh, one of the pastors who'd came, come to a pastoral conference had walked for, I guess it must have been a day, maybe two days, to get to that conference. That's how much it meant to him. And, of course, we've all heard stories, perhaps have done things like that, just to really demonstrate the centrality of Christ in your life. And it certainly was in his life. So I wanted to just, this is sort of a freebie, so I'm not going to charge extra for this. And Jack, you don't need to reflect the cost in my, my stipend. Um, so, and we have the prophetic word made more sure you will do well to pay attention to this as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So made the prophetic word made more sure. So in the New Testament, of course, it takes the prophecies of the Old Testament and explains them, helps us to understand them and to look forward. And the morning star, the, as, as God's spirit lives within us and, and then uh, rises in our hearts to help us to understand what we've, been, what we've read, uh, what we've listened to. But here's the point I was going to make. First of all, you must understand this, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the impulse of man, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. The word of God is true completely and utterly for all time and all places, but our understanding of it obviously varies because we're people. As I, I note there that we seek to understand the word of God accurately. That's why every guy who comes up here He's trying to communicate to you what the word of God has told him. But it's not going to be all the same. We also seek to help others to understand and apply it. But scripture is written across all the millennia of history. And from, as I point out there, Antarctica to Zimbabwe. So the, the uh, whole of the earth across thousands and thousands of years, really across millions of years, depending on your certainly thousands and tens of thousands of years to uh, explain God to man. So that truth is going to be understood differently in different times and frankly by different people. We use tools or grids, I refer to it as grids here, to understand scripture for ourselves. So we put a, we take, it's like taking a cookie cutter and you push it onto the dough, and you get a particular shape out of it. It helps you to, and you understand what that shape is. And so we use those as scripture. The grids, the cookie cutters, 
are not sacred. They're just our understanding. So what I'm going to give you today is, is my understanding of what, what the scriptures say. So the underlying truth of scripture is, as I said before, true for all times and all places. But um, our understanding will change over time. And that's, I brought that in to, to uh, explain that the commentator and I, we just look at Luke, this section of Luke differently. It's not wrong. It just helps us to realize that there is so m- there's such a rich treasure in Scripture that some of us pick a coin, some of us pick a jewel, and we all bring it to you. Um, so the first section in this one, and this is the one Jack really wanted to teach, but I get to instead, is the Lord's Prayer. So just uh, giving a little part of it, he was praying in a certain place, and when he ceased, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, words familiar to all of us, Father, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. A little different than Luke's rendition of it, which we're probably more familiar with. So it begins with exaltation. It it lifts up God, his glory, and his work, and and really repeats back to God his own greatness. Is that because God's an egomaniac and has to have that to live? No, it's because that's what we were created to do. That's why we're here, is to reflect back to God his greatness and goodness. So as we do that, we perhaps, in some ways, more purely than in any other activity, reflect who we are who we were made to be. But God has us, he commands us, he doesn't just suggest it or permit it, he commands us to address our needs to him, ask for provision for the day. But he knows what we need before we ask. So why ask? What's the point? Okay, so think about that, and I I think probably you already know the answer, but I'll come back to it in a little bit. He also commands us to seek forgiveness and that forgiveness is blocked by unforgiveness. <coughs> that passage in Isaiah uh, talks about the fact that that uh, the Lord's hand is not shortened that he cannot save, nor is his ear blocked so that he cannot hear. But sin breaks our communication with God, not because of God's inability, but because of his holiness. So I need to make sure that that's taken care of as I approach him. And you'll see the Greek word there, uh, aphelio, means to be uh, indebted, to be bound to repay. The forgiver releases the forgiven from the obligation to repay. An excellent book I would actually uh, commend to you is uh, Stanley's book, The Enemies of the Heart. He addresses four heart enemies that deal with things that really inhibit our relationship with God. We're going through it in our home group now. And the first one we covered was anger. And the solution to anger is forgiveness. Giving up the right to hold the other person responsible. And who is forgiveness for? Is it for the one who offended us? To a degree, but fundamentally it's for us. It releases, in releasing the offender, we release ourselves. 
because that's the growth that's getting us there. So it, uh, it also eliminates this block in our relationship with God, our communication with him. Another thing in this passage in Luke, the passage that follows the Lord's Prayer, it's the part where he goes into uh, the idea of the um, unceasing requester, like the guy who uh, comes in at 2 in the morning and knocks on your door and says, hey, uh, somebody's visited me. I don't have any food. Can you, uh, can you give me a block of cheese and a, a pound of bologna? And, of course, as you remember in the parable, something new okay as you remember in the parable um, but the uh, householder doesn't respond because he likes being woken up at two in the morning he responds because the guy keeps harassing him and he won't go away until he gets what he wants so that sounds weird to us what is what is God, what is Jesus telling us about God and his reaction to prayer is he that reluctant householder well, Luke is really telling us about prayer from our standpoint. God, it doesn't tell us about the personality of God. It tells us about how it looks from us. And what God wants us to do is to keep asking. And that's the, Alec, forgive me for Alec and Michael for any frequent uh, knowledge of Greek, but, but I am told that the verb that is used here means to ask and keep on asking, to seek and keep on seeking, to knock and keep on knocking. But why? Doesn't God want the best for us? Why, do, why doesn't he just respond to the request or even better answer the request before we ask? Of course, we forget that in many cases he does because we can't possibly ask for all those things we need. Many times we don't even want the things we need, but God addresses them anyway, particularly when he gives us those things that develop our character. So what does Christ promise us in response to persistent prayer? If you go to the end of that passage, he says, will not God give the Holy Spirit in response to those who ask him? What God gives us in response to persistent prayer is himself. Why does God want us to persist in prayer? To keep our attention on him. Why does God have us ask for things even though he knows what we all already need? To keep our attention on him. The point of prayer isn't ultimately that for which we ask. It's God himself, the greatest gift he can give us. So that leads me to a question, when should I stop asking? Well, I stop asking when I get an answer, but I have to remember, no is an answer, and wait is an answer. So, uh, if I get those answers, one of those answers, then I, uh, I can stop asking. Another one is, and I give you the references here, which are familiar to you, is I can stop, I should stop asking when I realize, come to realize that I'm asking for the wrong things or for the wrong reasons. And then I can obviously uh, desist from prayer. Okay, next section, please. Now, then we get into this, this, uh, passage that at least I, perhaps many of you, are pretty uncomfortable with. This stuff on spiritual warfare, this things about demons and things like that, eh, not, not really. I'm, I'm happy to, to gloss over this, to be honest. 
And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they, your sons, shall be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when one stronger than he assails him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. When, and you remember, of course, the, the context, Christ is, is uh, ordered demons out of people. In this, in this case, a, a dumb a man who's afflicted with uh, being unable to speak. And God casts out the demon and the man is able to speak. And people start murmuring against him, saying, well, the devil enabled him to do that by the devil's own devices. And Christ uses it, the op- not only the opportunity to address the issues of spiritual warfare, but the issues of salvation. Salvation is revolution, not reform. Christ doesn't want to fix this thing. He wants to wipe it out and start over. He wants it to be born again. And revolution must lead to transformation. Because you remember this passage, the section in the passage where it talks about the demon who's cast out, and then he wanders around looking for some place to, to uh, make a home. He comes back to his old home and finds it very nice and empty. And that's the fatal flaw. So he brings seven other spirits more evil than himself and reestablishes his reign. So Beelzebul, everybody, who read Lord of the Flies when you were in school? Well, Lord of the Flies is Beelzebul. That's the, another translation of the name. For some reason, somebody decided in the Babylonian Empire that they needed to worship dung. So they created a god for him, Beelzebul, Lord of the Flies or Lord of the House. Uh, one of the other expressions for a major demon or official in that sense. One thing I'd ask, one thing that confused me that I was encouraged to find here, Luke 9.50, so the same gospel says, Christ says, uh, when the disciples come back and say, somebody was casting out demons in your name, we told them to stop. And Christ says, don't do that. Let them go on. Because he who is not against you is for you. Well, that doesn't seem to make any sense. He does not gather with me scatters. Aren't they opposites? Not really. Because the people who were casting out demons were casting them out in the name of Christ. So they were really subscribing, uh, ascribing power to Christ and using that power to operate. Christ is supreme. He's invaded Satan's realm as he did in coming to earth and living on the earth with for us. But he lived here, he died, he was resurrected. He has conquered. It's tempting sometimes, I think, for, for uh, some of us, when we talk about this issue of spiritual warfare, we recognize the fact that, that God is more powerful than Satan, and we focus on opposing Satan instead of exalting God. Our focus should be on the conqueror, not the defeated. So as we address spiritual warfare, we're not trying to to tell Satan what to do. We're appealing to God to do his will, to accomplish his will in the earth. So I'm never 
to me, I need to be addressing Satan or demons. I need to be addressing the God of the universe. Because that's, if we look at the example in Scripture, for example, in Jude, that's exactly what happens. The angel addresses God and asks God to do something against Satan. The angel doesn't try to do something against Satan. And the last one is the spiritual world, like the natural world in some ways, abhors a vacuum. Make sure, and I, we think when we come here uh, at 6 a.m. on a Tuesday morning that everybody here is a believer. And that may be true, but it's probably not true. There are probably some of us here who are, who are still looking. And my encouragement to those folks is make sure that there's a no vacancy sign on your heart. Make sure that the fortress of your heart is occupied by the God of the universe and not left empty for any Tom, Dick, or Harry uh, spiritual entity that run, runs amok. So next slide. You okay till we go? Now, this is sort of the centrality of Christ idea that I thought was, was the focus of this section of Luke. The men of Nineveh will arrive, rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something is greater than, that greater than Jonah is here. And this is that same passage where he talks about in, at the beginning of chapter 12, and Jesus says to um, the disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And most of us are not bakers, I'm certainly not. So I'm not real familiar with the operation of leaven. But of course it's, it's yeast, and it can be used in positive and negative ways. Some commentators always argue it's always negative, but I tend to think it's sometimes positive, sometimes negative. It's a metaphor of the mental and moral corruption of sin and its tendency to infect others subtly. And a key word that I wanted to draw out is subtly. Hypocrisy can affect us and those around us without us knowing it. The word itself, derived directly from the Greek, is the acting of a stage player, acting a feigned part. My hypocrisy can unwittingly affect those around me, especially my children, to a degree my wife, but particularly my children because they see various views. They see the any contrast between reality and perfection. And the analogy that Christ lives, remember when he calls the Pharisees whitewashed tombs, full of all unclean, men's bones and all uncleanness? Well, the idea is we walk around and you accidentally, you know, if you've ever walked on, for example, Fredericksburg, walk around the battlefield at Fredericksburg. Well, it turns out that if you take a pin on a map of Northern Virginia, take a string representing 30 miles, draw a circle with that string, 100,000 men were killed or wounded or, or died of disease in that string in four years. So when you walk around on that ground, there's a reasonable chance, particularly if you go to some place like the wilderness, you're walking around on men's bones, unknowingly. Similarly, hypocrisy can be that way. We can unwittingly infect or affect those around us to see our hypocrisy and decide, make decisions that we don't even realize. But notice in the passage, 
Christ is something greater. He's the victor. He's the finger of God. He's the wisdom of God. He's the fulcrum of salvation. The Holy Spirit points to Christ. He doesn't encourage us. He doesn't suggest to us. He commands us to turn to Christ. God cannot, God will not save one who refuses that command ultimately. One who rejects and spurns the Holy Spirit's entreaty. This is, in my view, and I think most evangelical commentators' view, is the unpardonable sin. Um, some of us in, in BCC were involved with the Billy Graham uh, online ministry to uh, act as a chat coach to respond to people who come onto the website with spiritual questions. One of the most common questions is just this one, the unpardonable sin. What is the unpardonable sin? The unpardonable sin, in my view, is the ultimate rejection of the work of Christ, is turning away from salvation. Because again, if anybody here is not a believer yet, don't wait. You have no idea what will happen out on the far desert. Don't take a chance. Okay, next slide. So three sections that I wanted to cover in the question, what prayers might I need to rekindle? What's something that I prayed about in the past but just sort of gave up or stopped? What might I need to restart? And then what prayers might I need to stop praying? If you're like me, if you're a little bit obsessive, you can have prayers on your list for years. And maybe the person died or who knows. But maybe there's just something I need to stop praying. God, God had sa has said no or wait. The second one is what mismatches might there be between my words and my behavior on the one hand and my inner unguarded life on the other? And how might that be affecting those around me? And what should I do about it? Am I an unwitting vector of hypocrisy toward those around me? And then the last one, is there a no vacancy sign on the door of my heart that's not yet allowed in? Okay, thanks for listening. I appreciate it. Off to your tables. As soon as Mike comes up.